Hello everyone and welcome back to the MTG Novels Project. The MTG Novels Project is available both on YouTube and as a podcast version. Check the description for more details. A legal note. This is an unofficial audiobook with original content belonging to Wizard of the Coast. This content is covered under the 2017 Wizard of the Coast fan content policy. Listener discussion is advised. Chapter 4 Chaotic air currents rising above the patchwork of cultivated fields. Seeds Zancha's sphere. For several panicked heartbeats as she battled the provisions bouncing around inside the sphere, Zancha didn't know where she was or why. After more than 3,000 years, she needed that long to climb out of her memories. The disorientation had passed before the disaster could begin. Zancha was in control before the sphere brushed the bank of a tree-shallowed stream. It collapsed around her, a warm, moist film that evaporated quickly, as it had countless times before. But thoughts of what had happened left her gasping for air. Sancha hadn't intended to lose herself in her memories. The past, when there was so much of it crammed into a single mind, was a kind of madness. She dropped to her knees and wiped the film from her face, before it had a chance to dry. Between coughs, Zancha took her bearings from the horizon. Sun sinking in the west, mountains to the south, gentle hills elsewhere. She came to her senses over the inner Fwan Pinkar, precisely the place she'd wanted to be. Luck, Zancha told herself, and succumbed to another round of coughing. Zancha never liked to rely on luck, but just then, thoughts of luck were preferable to the alternatives. There she'd been thinking of her beginnings, as she rarely did. Worse, she'd been thinking of Gix. She'd never forgotten that green-blue spark. Despite everything, she worried that the demon's mark might still be lurking somewhere within her skull. She, she made herself think about Urza, and all that they'd survived together. He could look inside her and destroy her if she became untrustworthy. So long as she didn't. Sancha believed she could trust herself. But thoughts of Gix were no reason to fear Gix. Nothing escaped the excoriations of Phyrexia's seven sphere. Even if the blue-green spark remained, the demon who drilled it into her was gone. Urza insisted that she steer clear Phyrexians when she sensed them. He didn't want his enemies to know where he was or that he'd return to the land of his birth. They both knew that if she'd ever fall back into Frexian hands, they'd strip her memories before they consigned her to the Seventh Sphere, and she knew too many of Urza's secrets to justify the risk. The Frexian presence on Dominaria had been growing over the past 50 years. Morven and Basarat were only two among scores of places where Zanja had once scourged regularly, but were, or soon would be, off-limits. Af- Afuin... Pinkar was not, however, among those. The little realm on the wrong side of the great island of Gulmani was so isolated and unimportant that the rest of it, of what had once been Teresier, scarcely acknowledged its existence. It was the last place Zanza expected a scent of Frexian. If she'd succumbed to thoughts of Gix while soaring over the Efuen Pinkar, it wasn't because Frexen had tickled her mind, but because she'd begun to doubt Urza. True, 
he'd go to the places where she's scented sleepers and he'd find them. But he didn't do anything about them. Newts disguised himself as born folk weren't enough to go to Earth into action. Lancha thought it would take death for that. She'd been perversely pleased when she'd found out Bazaret and Marvern. She thought for sure that would overcome Urza's obsession with the past, and perhaps it had. He never came as close to striking her. Kayla Bing Krug had mentioned Efu and Pinsar in her epic. Afand Chronicers explained that omission by proclaiming their land had been empty until 300 years ago, when a handful of boats had brought a band of refugees to Gulmani's backside. Sancha doubted there had been enough boats in Tourcier to account for all the living Efuns, but Scribe lied. She knew that from the Antiquity Wars collection. What mattered to Sancha was that almost any ten men of Efu and Pinsar, at least one, matched Kayla's word picture of Mishra. Another had his impulsive temperament. To find better odds, she'd have to soar across the Sea of Laments, something she'd done just once, by mistake and had sworn she'd never try again. Zanshin knew her plan to bring Urza face-to-face with a dark, edgy youth, who might remind him of his long-dead brother. Wasn't the most imaginative strategy, but she was Frexian, as Ursa never ceased telling her. Frexians lacked imagination. Urza himself was a genius, a man of great power and limitless imagination, when he chose to exercise it. When she had him face-to-face with her false Mishra, Sancho expected Urza's imagination would repair any deficits in her clumsy Phyrexian strategy. Then, Sancho caught herself thinking about other notoriously failed strategies. Gicks and thousands of identical sexless newts. What if I'm wrong? She asked the setting son. The same question that Urza asked whenever she tried to prod him into action. The son didn't answer, so Sancho gave her the same answer she gave Urza. Though Minari is doomed if Urza does nothing. If he thinks his brothers come back to him, he might do something. Something, anything is better than nothing. Sancho watched the last silvery, fiery sliver of sunlight vanish in the west. Her sphere had dried to a white fine powder that disappeared in the breeze. Her best guess, she'd been aloft without food or water or restful sleep for two and a half days. There's water in this and the stream and more than enough food in her shoulder sack. But sleep proved elusive. Wrapped in her cloak, Zancha saw Gick's toothsome face every time she closed her eyes. After watching the star slide across the sky, she yawned out another sphere as the eastern horizon began to brighten. Zancha hadn't thought she'd find Mitsu in the first village she visited, though experience on other worlds had convinced her that every village harbored at least one youth with more ambition than sense. It stood to reason that she might need to visit several villages before she found the right combination of temperament and appearance. But temperament and appearance weren't her problems. In the 20 years since her last visit, war and famine had came to Efun Pinkar. The cultivated fields where she'd spent her first sleepless nights had proved the exception to the new rules. The first village that Sancho approached was still smoldering. The second had trees growing from abandoned hearths. Those villages had remained intact, so behind pallages of stone and brick and sharpened stakes. She posed the gates warily, 
forgetting that she disguised herself as a cocky, aristocratic youth. It was an easy charade, one that matched her temperament and appearance. But through their wandering, she and Urzette came across very few wars that, that couldn't be blamed on aristocratic greed or pride. The war in the Efun Pinkar, however, proved to be one of the rare exceptions. The gates, the gates swung open before she announced herself. The whole village greeted her with pleading eyes. They'd made assumptions. She was a young man who lost his horse and companions to the enemy. She needed their help, but most of all, she assumed they'd come to help. Outnumbered and curious, Sancha made her own assumption. She'd learn more if she let them believe what they wanted to. You will go to Pinkar City and tell Taberna what is happening, the village spokesman said, once he'd offered her food and drink. We are all too old to make the journey. Taberna does not know, another elder said, and all the villagers bobbed their head in agreement. He can't know. If Taberna knew, he would come to us. If he knew, he would help us. He would not let us suffer. A multitude of voices all saying the same thing. A name named Taberna had governed Efun Picard 20 years ago. Part priest, part prince, he'd been an able war ruler. If the villagers Taberna were still the same man Zaj remembered, though, he'd be well past his prime and beloved or not, someone would take advantage of him. Unless that someone would be a man dressed as she dressed in fine clothes, with a good still slower slung between his hip. Sandra couldn't ask too many questions, not without compromising her disguise, but she promised to deliver the villagers' message. Red Stripes and Shrada were terrorizing the countryside. The village offered to give her a swayed back horse for her journey. Sandra bought it mistake instead with a silver coin and left the next day, before her debts grew any higher. The elders apologized that they couldn't offer her the escort a young nobleman deserved, but all their young men were gone swept up by one side of, or the other. As she rode away, Zanja couldn't guess how the Shrada had gotten involved in a war. Twenty years ago, the Shrada had been a harmless sect of ascetics and fools. They preached about anyone who did not live by the 256 rules in Avohir's holy book was damned. But no one had taken them seriously. She had no idea who or what the web stripes were until she visited a few more villages. The red stripes had begun a royal mercenaries charged with the protection of the palaces and temples that the suddenly military Shrada had been threatening some 15 years ago. Oddly enough, in none of the tales that she listened to did she hear of the two groups confronting each other. Instead, they roamed the countryside, searching out each other's partisans, making accusations when none could be proved, then killing the accused and burning their homes. The Shrada, a really vis uh, weary visitor, explained, Tells they are the wrath of Avohir, and they punish us for not living closely by Avohir's holy book. Then, after the Shraddha had finished with us, the Red Stripes come. They see that the Shraddha didn't take everything, so they take what's left. Every spring it begins again, one of the old women added. Soon there will be nothing left. Twice we sent men to Taberna. Twice they did not come back. We have no men left. Then, as the other village and other survivors asked Hizantia, to carry their despair to Taberna's ear. She nodded, accepting their food, and left on her swayed-back horse, knowing that there's nothing she could do. Her path did not take her to Pinkar City. Taberna's no coast capital. She began to doubt it would take her to 
a suitable Mishra either. With or without pitched battles, Efu and Pinkar had been at war for nearly a decade, and young men were in short supply. Azantra's path of rutted dirt trail, because her sphere wouldn't accommodate a horse, took her towards Medran, a market town. A brace of guards greeted her with hands on their sword hips and contempt in their eyes. Where had she been? How did a normal lad with fine boots and a sword come to be riding a swayed-back nag? Sancha noticed that their tunics were hems with a strike of bright red wool. She told them how she'd ridden into the countryside with older and more experienced relatives, but had been beset by the Shrada, and she was the sole survivors, heading back to Pinkar City, on a better horse if there's one to be found. Sancha sniffed loudly when it came to contempt. She learned all the trips before the first boatload of refugees struck the Efer and Picard shore. She'd also yawned out her armor before she'd ridden up the gate. The red stripes were in for a surprise if they drew her swords against her. Good sense prevailed. They let her pass through. Sancha figured to keep an eye for her back, even with a sword. A slight, beardless youth in too fine clothes was a tempting target, especially when the nearest protectors were also the likeliest prisoners. Sancha followed the widening street until he blocked her to a plaza where artisans and farmers hawked produce from wagons. She gave the horse to the farmers with the largest wagon in exchange for black bread and dried fruit. She asked how an unbearded swordsman came to be a peddling a nag in Medran town. Sancha recited her made-up tale. The farmer wasn't surprised that the Shrada would have failed her purported companions. The more wealth a man has, the less the Shrada believe him when he says he abides by the book. Strange, though, that they'd risk a party as large as when your uncle had assembled. Were me, I suspect that the men he tired weren't what they said they were. Zara shrugged cautiously. I'm sure my uncle thought the same before they killed him. Then, because the farmer seemed more world-wise than the villagers, he tempted with the thought that had nagged her from the beginning. He tired red stripes, thought it would keep us safe. Shrouded atta never attacked men with websites under Tudic. The father took her bait, but not quite the way she expected. The red stripes don't bother the Shrada where they live, and the Shrada usually return the favor. But when there's wealth to be taken, every man's a target, especially the... He figured him as his tunic. I won't speak ill if you're dead, but it's a fool who in, trusts in stripes or colors. Sancho walked away from the wagons, thinking it might be better to get all the Medran immediately. She was headed towards a different gate than the one she'd entered when she spotted a knot of men and women huddled in the shade of a tattered. With my second glance, Zanja saw the bonds at their neck, wrists and ankles. Prisoner, she saw, then corrected herself. Slaves. She hadn't seen slaves the last time she visited the Efrun Picar, nor had she seen any of the in the beleaguered villages. But it was a rare realm, a rarer world, that didn't cultivate slavery in one of its many forms. Sanja took a breath and kept walking. She could see that a splayed-back horse found a good home, but there was nothing that she could do for the slaves. Sanja continued walking. One step, another. Misery st stopped before her, before she took a third. Looking back over the shoulder, she caught the eyes of a slave, who stared at her as if the condition was indicating her responsibility. Though at least a hundred parts hundred paces apart, Sancha saw that the slave was dark-haired young man. I asked my husband's brother how he'd come to leave the Falaji horde. Kayla had written in an antiquity ward. Misha replied, 
that he was a slave, not their leader. He laughed and added that I, too, was a slave to my people, but his eyes were haunted as he laughed, and there were scars around his wrists. In all the times Sancha had read that passage, she'd follow Urza's lead and blame Frexia for Misha's scars and bitterness. But the Falaji had been a slave-keeping folk and looked across the Medan Plaza. Sancha suddenly believed that Misha had taken, told Kayla a simple, unvarnished truth. Sancha believed as well that she'd found her with Mishra. With Urza's armor still around her, she strode over to the tavern. Are you they spoken for? She asked the only unchained man. She saw a balding man with an eunuch's unfinished face. He wasn't in charge, but after a bar, bow, sorry, after a bow, he scurried into the tavern to fetch his master, who proved to be a giant of a woman, garbed like Zancha, in man's clothing, though in the slave master's case, the effect was intimidating rather than disguise. They're bound for all mass, the slave master said. Her breath was thick with beer, but she wasn't nearly drunk. You know it's against the law to sell flesh here. By her posture, the slaver was right about the law and right for negotiation. I have more of her in gold, Sancha said, which was true enough. Money was never a problem for a planeswalker or his companion. This slave master hawked and spat, mugs getting worn. Zancha thought fast. For ransom, then. I recognize a distant cousin in your coffle. You've kept him safe, no doubt. I'll pay you for trouble and take him off your hands. Him? The slaver laughed until she belched. There were women in the slave string, and Zancha was disguised as a young, presumably curious man. A cousin, Sancho repeated, showing more anxiety than she felt. Let the slaver last and think about what she wanted. Sancho had the other woman's attention, and she had the slave too. For ransom, she slung her purse and fished out a gold coin as big as her nose. Five of those, the slaver said, smashing her open hand between Sancho's shoulder blades. For ransom. If she were truly in the market for a slave, Sancho would have protested that no one was worth five gold navari. But she'd be prepared to split twelve of the heavy modern coins before an unlikely youth and his family. She dug out a four, another four and handed them over to the slaver, who beat each one. Zancha knew the coins were true, but was relieved when they passed the slaver's test. Which one's your cousin? Zancha pointed to the dark-haired youth, who didn't blink under the scrutiny. The slavers, whose eyebrows remained resolved, skeptically picked her head. Pick another relative, boy. That one will eat you alive. Blood's blood, Zancha insisted, and ours is the same. I won't leave with another. Garf! The slaver shouted to the eunuch to her side. She held her hand, and Garf surrendered a slender black rod. The slaver took it and turned to Zancha. Another Nari. You're going to need this. Would ancient Ashnod be pleased by all the improvements Domarian slavers and torturers had bought to her pain-inflicting artifacts in the centuries since her death? Sancha bought the thing, phony to keep the slaver, or Garve, from ever using it again. Cut him out, the slaver told Garve and added, while Garve walked among the slavers. Have fun, boy. I intend to, Sancha assured her, then watched as Garve seized the leather band around the youth's necks and jerked him roughly to his feet. Garve gave the band a vicious twist, so it choked the youth and kept him quiet while the eunuch snapped the rivets that bound Sancha's new slave to the others. The youth's face became red, 
His eyes rolled. I want him alive, Sancho warned in a low voice. The promised her threats were as good as her gold. Her new slave dropped to one knee when Garth suddenly released him. Hackling spittle, he got himself upright before the eunuch touched him again. Riveted leather manacles bound his wrist close behind his back. He couldn't clean his lightly bearded chin. A short iron chain ran between his ankles. He could walk barely, but not run. As he came closer, watching his reach, Santa counted the sores and bruises she hadn't noticed while he was star sta staring. Sanja hadn't been comfortable owning a horse. She didn't know what to do with a slave. The thought of grabbing the arm length of the leather hanging from the band around his neck repelled her, though that was what everyone, including the youth, expected her to do. You're too tall, she said at last, though he wasn't as tall as Urza. She hoped that wasn't going to be a problem further along in her plan. You'll walk beside me until I can arrange something more. Sanja paused. Frexians might not have an imagination, but born folk certainly did, and there's nothing like science to inspire the use of it. Something more appropriate. She smiled broadly and her slave walked politely beside her, his change clanking on the plaza's cobblestones. Flampa's thoughts were focused on how she'd get them out of Medrad without attracting attention from the Red Stripes. She wasn't expecting any other sort of trouble until the youth staggered against her. Muttering curses no Ephraim had heard before, Sancho got an arm round his waist and shoved him upright. It wasn't a hard shove, but he groaned and made no attempt to start walking again. Sick sweat bloomed on his face. He burned through his bravery. Do you see that curb beside the fountain? A slight nod and a catch on his muscles. He was steady on the verge of fainting. Get that far and you can rest. Drink some water. Water, he repeated, a hoarse, painful sounding whisper. Sandra hoped his problem wasn't serious. If guard had damaged him, guard wouldn't live to see the sunset. Her slave shoved one foot in front of another. She helped him keep his balance. In five steps, Lazar learned to hate that treacherous chain between his ankles. He fell one stride short of the fountain curb. Sancho looked the other way while she dragged him into it. Then she drew a drive from the seam of her boot. The blade was tempered steel from another world, and it made fast work of the wrist manacles. Sancho gasped when she saw wings of weeping sores. Without a second thought, she heard the slash leather across the cobblestones. Her slave was already washing his face and slurping water from the fountain. Zancha thought it was a good sign, but wasn't surprised when her next question, Are you hungry? Want her nothing more than another cold, piercing stare. She retreated a load of black bread, tore off a chunk and offered it to him. He reached past her offering to load towards the loaf in her other hand. You're bold for a slave. You're small for a master, he countered, closing his hand over the bread he wanted. Zancha dropped the sore piece and seized his arm. She didn't like to feel the open sores beneath her fingers, and she had every intention of giving him the whole loaf eventually. But points had to be made. She tightened her grip. Appearance, appearances her still-named slave needed to learn could be deceiving. In Frexia, newts were soft, useless creatures. But in most other worlds, Zancha was as strong as a well-muscled man, half in her size. With a groan, the slave let go of the larger portion, and when she released, picked up the smaller portion from the ground. Slowly, Sancho chided him, though she knew it would be impossible for him to obey. Swallow, breathe, take a sip of water. Her hand shot out. While Sancho wondered what she should do next, he captured the unguarded bread and held it tight. Only his eyes moved from Sancho's face to the black plaid she tucked through her belt. 
Asked first, so she adjusted, but made no move for her belt. Even if by some miracle of carelessness he stole the prod and stuck her with it, Urza's armor would protect her. Master, may I eat? For a man of short, for a man short of his final growth, Sanchez Slade had a mature grasp of sarcasm. He definitely had Misha's attitude in addition to Misha's appearance. I didn't buy you to starve you. Why did you then? He asked with a mouthful of bread. I have need of a man like you. He gave Sancha the same look the slaver and Garv had given her. She began to think she'd gotten herself into a position of a fisherman who took a fish larger than his boat. Only time would tell if she'd bring him aboard, or if he drowned her. My, your name will be Mishra, and you will answer to it when you hear it. Misha laughed a short, snouting sound. Oh yes, Master Urza. Despite what she told Urza, the detail of Kega Bing Krug's antiquity were worth that widely spread across the remainder of the Tezier, Teresier. Zancha hadn't expected her slaves to recognize his name, nor was she prepared for his aggressive insolence. I've made a mistake, she told herself. I've done a terrible thing. Then Misha started choking. He tugged on the tight lever bound around his throat and managed to gulp down his mouth for a bed. His fingers came away strained with blood pus. Zancha looked at her own feet. She must have made a mistake. But she hadn't done anything terrible. You might call me Zancha, and when you meet him, Urza is just Urza. He would not like to be called Master, especially not by his brother. Zancha, what kind of name is that? If I'm Misha, and you work for Urza, shouldn't your name be Thanos? You're a little bit small for the part. Grow out your hair, and you can play Kayla, an ugly Kayla, but a love of Evo here. I was better off with Tuktav and Garv. You know the antiquity war. Surprised I can read and write too. I count without using my fingers. He held up his hand but saw something. The stains, perhaps she'd already noticed, that cracked his insolence. I wasn't born a slave, he concluded softly, staring off the plaza at his memories. I had a life. A name. What name? Rat. What? She thought she misunderstood. Rat. Short for Ratepe. I grew into it, another snorted laugh, or maybe a strangled sob. Either way, it ended when the leather, neck leather brought out another choking spell. Hold still, Jansa told her, throwing a knife again. I don't want to cut you. There wasn't even a flicker of trust in Rat's eyes as she laid the blade against his neck. He winced as she slid it beneath the leather. She had saw through the sweat-hardened leather, and it pricked his skin a handful of times before she was done. The tip was bloody when it emerged from the other side, but it did not make a grab for it, her or the weapon. I'm sorry, she said when she was finished. Sancha raised an arm to hurl the collar away as she hurled the manacles. Rat caught the trailing leash. Leather fell into his lap. I'll keep it. Sancha knew that the unusual order of such thing, slaves didn't have personal property, but she was about to take the filthy collar away from him. I have a task for you, she said as he worried the collar between his hands. I would have offered you the gold if you'd been free. You will be free, I swear it, when you're done what I need to. And if I don't? Well, Zancho rested with an answer to that question. A noisy clang of red stripes entered the plaza from the east, the direction through with Zancho had hoped to leave. She and Rat were far from alone on the cobblestones, and she reasonably hoped that, despite their mismatched appearance, him in rags, weeping sores, 
her with boots and a sword, they wouldn't draw too much attention. Rat saw the red stripes as well. He snapped the leather against his thighs like a whip. Red stripes, Sergeant guessed, had something to do with his transformation from free to slave. Cons considering his apparent education and remembering the farmer gesture, he wondered if he'd once worn a gar the same garments she was wearing. Hold it in, she advised him. You've got a chain. She left the thought incomplete as a gentle breeze brought her the last scent she'd ever wanted to smell. Glistening oil. One of the red stripes was a sleeper. A newt like her, but different too. Newts of this new invasion had borne folk ways and didn't clump together in cadres. In truth, they didn't seem to know they were Phyrexian. Zancha didn't care to test her theory. She hunched on her knees as she sat, catching her breath in her hands, hiding the exhalations that might reveal her glistening scent. She couldn't relax or be too careful. Besides Zancha, Rat beat a counterpoint of curses and leather. There's a chance that the red striped sleeper could hear every word. Quiet, Zancha hissed a command as she clapped her hand over Rat's. Quiet! So she squeezed until she felt the sores and sinews pop. Afraid of the red stripes? She took a deep admiration. They're not my friends. Quiet! Rat bent over to match her posture, blocking her view as well. He wouldn't stop talking. And who are your friends? The Shraddha? You keep strange company. Urza, Mishra, the Shraddha? You're asking for trouble. Sancha ignored him. She hunched lower until she could see beneath Rat's arms. The red stripes were heading into the same tavern where the slaver drank. We've got to leave. Can you walk? Why? I'm not afraid of red stripes. I'll join them right now if I have to. The elders at the first visit had warned Sancha that the young men had chosen sides, one way or another. It figured that Misha would have Phyrexian inclinations. She didn't have time to persuade him. She had to bustle. Want to hop over and try? You better hurry. Or do you think that eunuch saved you a seat? I'm not that stupid. I lost my chance the moment I got sapped and sold. Then stand up and start walking. Yes, master. And this has been chapter four. Thanks for listening. Thank mm -hmm. you.